There are people that saying, oh, we need to let the federal government figure out what they want to do about cannabis. We need to suspend the Constitution. We need to limit interstate commerce so that we can let the federal government figure out what it wants to do. And it's like the federal government has decided. They haven't done anything for decades. (laughs) You know, like the states are the primary regulators of cannabis. And all we need is for the federal government to get out of the way. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak. They talk to you. They will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Psilocybin Says. I'm Eric Osborne. And this is Courtney Rose. You are about to embark on a legal adventure with us in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh... The kind of legal adventure that, you know, you want you want to embark on. <laughs> Most legal point, adventures yeah. <laughs> uh, you may not want to, but this one is great. We are, uh, in this episode, we interview Victoria Littman, who is a, not only an attorney who is specializing in the psychedelic field, but she's also um, obtained a master's in divinity. And she also is a tax attorney, uh, and she is also married to a rabbi. (laughs) So this conversation was just so good. We walked away feeling like we can't wait to interview her again. Yeah, yeah. I felt like we met a new friend. Victoria also consumes psychedelics herself, and she is an advocate for anyone who is in the practice of psychedelic work, be it law, be it administration, whatever it is, that they are also consumers of these sacred plants, which to me holds great value. I love working with professionals in this world who actually have a working relationship with the plants. I can't tell you how excited I was to interview Victoria. If you can just step into the shoes of Eric and I (laughs) and having a psychedelic church and having other psychedelic organizations in the past and navigating tax law in such a unique and growing and new field, um, you can imagine how much advice we would want and just (laughs) insight into someone uh, from someone who is an expert. So Victoria is definitely that. So we also learned some things. Indeed, um, indeed. And if you were in my shoes, then you'd probably be barefoot like I usually am, (laughs) but you would also (laughs) hop on over to YouTube and check this video out and share it with your network. You would also give it a rating. You'd subscribe. (laughs) You'd give this podcast a five-star review. You'd also leave some comments about how wonderful this show is and how much it just enlightens your life and opens your eyes to the value of psilocybin in so many ways. But you don't have to. (laughs) But you can. Yeah, you can. I would recommend checking this out on YouTube because there's nothing like seeing people's faces and especially, I mean, not especially, but I am a very hands in the air type of of conversationalist. So you're missing a lot, you know, from me if If you're not watching on YouTube. (laughs) If nothing else, you could go on the YouTube video and comment about Courtney's hand movements. (laughs) Yes, I have been told to calm down recently. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we hope you enjoy this episode as much as Courtney and I enjoy each other's company. 
Oh, <laughs> oh, I just threw that in. I did. That's sweet. Well, I am. Yeah. Remember, uh, remember to wherever you are listening to this, please do rate it. And um, if you could also, if you're on YouTube, make sure you've hit the notification bell so that you get notified when Eric goes live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern for his on psilocybin live Q and A's. And don't forget, you can be a part of that conversation. You can click on the link in the live stream chat and hop on in. We would love to hear you talk about your experiences, ask your questions and share your insights. Until then, thanks so much for being a part of our show. Thanks. All right, Victoria, welcome to Psilocybin. Yes, so good to have you. you here. Yeah, so this is a conversation that I am not very well versed in. So I'm hoping that we'll get, you know, to some degree educated. But really what we talked about just now before we started recording this, the conversation around psychedelics, not necessarily being central to the religious practice, but still being legally permissible within the context of religion is is really a new idea to me, because as we've been working with sanctuary it's just been this is this is the law and we're going to follow the law you know Mm -hmm. Uh, i think there's a misunderstanding perhaps that a lot of psychedelic users are just out there trying to break laws (laughs) and uh, couldn't be farther from the truth so maybe if you could just give our guests we'll do an introduction beforehand obviously but uh just you know tell our guests just a brief about yourself about me, um, I, I'm thinking about what you were just saying about centrality, but we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, so I feel like I, I've been on this journey to be able to do work helping support and, and help furthering the future of religious use of psychedelics for a while. I would say six, seven, eight years, maybe. I studied religion as an undergrad. I went to college in L.A., uh, grew up on the East Coast, so in California was exposed to drugs and medical cannabis and um, a culture that was very different and um, shaped by that and realized also that, you know, I was studying religion as a major. And then within religion, there was history around research with use of psychedelics. There was case law having to do with religious use of psychedelics. Um, So I saw that there was this intersection um, emerging uh, and it really motivated me to think about long-term how I can be Um, you know, an active part of helping the psychedelic future and creating the psychedelic future. So I was in grad school for six years. I did a master's of divinity uh, at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where I studied religion and law um, and looked at psychedelic research and, you know, history of secular and spiritual practices in the U.S., among lots of other cool spiritual and religious ideas, Um, and then went to law school, uh, where I also really focused on laws relating to drugs and religious freedom. Um, And then I am a a nerd. And also I think that there's a lot that is held in the tax code with relates to, as relates to religious organizations. So the IRS is one of the biggest ways that religious organizations have to deal with the government. Um, And so I was motivated and in in my, I'm really into religious use, but I also am a medical cannabis patient. I'm passionate about access to all kinds of um, medicines that are illegal and scheduled and, you know, cannabis, psychedelics, Um, And so taxes are a huge, huge part of creating access through all legal markets. Um, So both on the religious side and the access side, I really was motivated to study tax. So last year I did an additional degree, a law degree at Georgetown, focusing on tax um, and very, very heavily focused on taxes related to religious organizations um, and did some research there. 
uh, where I really just collected information about all the different psychedelic religions that are out there, um, how they're talking about their tax status, how they're approaching their tax status, um, and trying to use that as a lens to understand what this landscape looks like and what other approaches we might have besides this DEA exemption bottleneck BS from my perspective. Um, and so that, I think, led me to Gary's podcast and has led me here. And I'm starting my practice um, as part of a law firm, Parlator Law Group, uh, where I really have the freedom to build up and bring in the kind of work I want to do. So it's ranged from some psychedelic and cannabis businesses, but also nonprofits, um, tax-exempt orgs, religious communities. Um, so I'm really excited to see what I can do uh, to help further this movement. Um, and then I guess one other piece on this is I'm the wife of a rabbi. So I grew up Jewish. I'm in a Jewish community. Um, and so to me, lived religion is not just something to study or talk about, but community is just a huge part of my life. And so when I have ideas around how, you know, drugs, for example, like alcohol could be a part of community or cannabis or psilocybin, um, it's kind of rooted in how I understand my own uh, religion as a reformed Jew. So that was a lot, but I think all of those pieces work together uh, to bring me here. Yes. So, yeah, everything that you just said um, and so much more that I heard on uh, Psychedelica, Psychedelic Lex, Psychedelica Lex, um, Gary, uh, when you were on that podcast, it's like every level that you presented, I just, ah, oh, I just kept being like, yes, yes. Like, we've got to talk with her because um, Eric and I, uh, being in the world of uh, psychedelic organizations for uh, since 2013 uh, and navigating that world and meeting different professionals uh, to help us navigate that world, particularly attorneys, and then the whole world of tax mixed <laughs> up in there. It's just been such a foggy, uh, like blurry, what do we do? And, you know, very experienced professionals in their field advising us have just been like, eh. like when it comes to what you all are doing, it's just kind of like, eh, I don't know. So hearing you speak, someone who's actually immersed in community and has been immersed in community and has this like wonderful mix, this of this niche is just like, oh, like you're such a gem in the psychedelic organization uh, world. So I'm just, yeah, so excited to to learn more. Well, this, you know, I was hoping that your uh, kind of extended bio there would bridge us into the conversation around around non-centrality and you bringing up the Jewish background certainly does. And And this is, I think, one of the more compelling conversations within the uh, religious use. And it's something that I have been really curious as we're seeing, you know, we just saw a Jewish practitioner in Colorado get arrested. And can you just, just take us into this world of um, psychedelics, the potential for psychedelics to be included in religious practice without being necessarily central to the religion and how we work that into a legal framework? It's a big question. And thank mm -hmm. you for the kind words. Um, well, I would say just as a matter of making sure the listeners and, and everyone knows right now, the law's perspective is that if if because these are criminal laws, they're general criminal laws. If you want to advocate that you have a right to use them, you need to show the government's burden is substantial. And the way that they look at that is whether or not your use is central, because how could the government's burden be substantial if this wasn't such an central, important part of your practice? 
Um, and from looking at the research, you know, just really, I spent hours just looking at all the different psychedelic religious communities that are public facing and seeing how they're organizing themselves and what they're talking about. And um, I actually found that this framework, this requirement of centrality, sort of like has the impact of on forming communities that then the drug use is central. And some of them look more like commercial ceremonies. And I do think we're going to see a legal framework in the long term where you do have some licensed commercial spiritual use, maybe in Oregon, maybe other places. But from my perspective, true community shouldn't need to be licensed or subject to the same regulations. So that would be maybe more of the church framework um, and what that would look like. Uh, and I mean, it, I don't think like when you talk to someone using common sense about religious practice and real religious community, you know, people don't say, oh, well, the wine is the most important thing to my Jewish community. No, it's the community. It's the belonging. It's the showing up for services and support groups. It's all these other things that you do um, where the sacrament is just one piece of it. Uh, and I understand in some traditions, like the sacrament is, uh, you know, interaction with the divine. But for me, interaction with the divine, it, it also comes through community. It comes through music. It comes through, you know, um, feeling connected. It comes through being comforted when you're grieving. I mean, all these other things that make you feel whole through religion, I think are missed when we say to communities, if you want to be legally defensible, then your use has to be the most important thing. And you need to show that like you couldn't have a religion without it. And to me, I mean, you've heard me say that it's like, it doesn't, why should it have to be like that? And from a Jewish perspective, you're already seeing that there are movements and that's, I speak for my own, but it could be true for Christian Christianity as well, or other, um, I would say generally accepted religious categories like Buddhism or Christianity, Judaism, um, where why would you have to use it every single time? Or why should it have to be central? Like you could have a cannabis event once a month, or you could have a psilocybin microdosing on certain holidays or macrodosing, or you could do special retreats where people want to, you know, just like a Jewish community might have a weekend meditation retreat. Why wouldn't they be able to have a weekend psychedelic retreat, but it shouldn't have to be the most central thing. And I, I really, when I speak sometimes to my own community or people I know in these communities, like that's going to be some of the strongest advocates for religious use of psychedelics are going to be these communities that are already big established religious communities saying to the government, like, we don't need the DEA exemption. Like, we don't, like, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have to do that for wine. We want to use something that is already starting to be legal at the state or federal level um, and, and, like, use that in our ceremonies as we want to, as people want to. And what the health requirements for that should be are, you know, an open question. I, I certainly don't think that the current requirements of the DEA exemption, so if you are able to get a DEA exemption, which... Um, the long and short of it is it's very difficult and you're probably not going to get it. If, right. if you were going to get it in, in magic world, um, you would be subject to the same DEA requirements as researchers. And I don't think that's a good place for religious communities in the first place. So to me, the DEA process is kind of a non-starter besides the fact that it's pretty unconstitutional and no practitioners are doing it. So for all those reasons, it's like we can beat our head against that wall. Um, so one, one thing I've thought about, which I've, talked about in my research and um, on, I think on Gary's podcast, at least in the short term, would be having the IRS um, be, because right now, I mean, when people say, oh, who in the government should be deciding what religion is? Well, like no one, <laughs> no one should be, we should be able to do what we want. And that's not really how it is right now, right? Like a lot of churches do get their 501c3 determination letters because it allows them to raise more money. It allows them to rent property. It allows them to open bank accounts. Um, so if we can get through that IRS, like if the IRS says that you're a religion, they have their 12 factors, we should change those. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done on the IRS front, but if that is already the agency who's deciding what a religion is, 
then I think trying to push towards that being the agency that approve, like it shouldn't matter if you use psychedelics, if you, and there are communities that have gotten their C3 status, they apply to the IRS. They may not disclose their use of a scheduled substance. They get their approval. They're a church in the eyes of the law. It shouldn't matter that they use psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, if you want to use it, what should be the requirements? Like, I think that should be the conversation. It shouldn't be, oh, I have to prove to the DEA that I'm sincere. We should sort of like switch the burden back onto the government. Like you prove to us that we're not sincere. Like right. we're a religion, we're doing our thing. Um, I just unloaded a lot of ideas on policy, but hopefully that answered that question. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to take any follow-up to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what it has me thinking of is that what you're talking about has the potential to completely change the face of religious practice in the United States. You know, if other, if, if non-psychedelic religions, so to speak, start adopting this as a legitimate practice, then what does that look like in 20 years for the Christian faith or the Jewish faith or Islam, whatever it is, you know, it's phenomenal to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you kind of went ahead and, um, started to answer the question that was simmering in my mind was 508C1A uh, versus 501C3 uh, and like getting your feedback on that. I'm super curious um, about that. Um, clear, Obviously, or you probably already know, Sanctuary uh, is clear on our website. We're a 508 and, you know, there's different reasons for that. Um, but the whole process of getting that determination letter uh, as a 501 was kind of part of that and being told that, you know, that's not likely (laughs) for you all. Um, So hearing you say that there have been psychedelic churches that have gotten that determination letter is a little surprising to me, Um, but it sounds like they haven't disclosed (laughs) the full picture. Yeah, exactly. Which they would argue that their use is religious, right? And it's not illegal. Um, and and this is something I mean, I talked about on Gary's. Like, I talked to a lot of practitioners. I looked at a lot of websites. I looked at corporate filings. I looked at C3 lookup. I mean, there are definitely approved churches. I feel comfortable saying that if they disclose their use, they're not approved. So I think that's like a pretty hard line. But there are ways, legal ways to say, oh, well, we're talking about our sacrament. It shouldn't, ma- you know, it shouldn't matter what it is. And that, that, and that the idea that you have to disclose is sort of a burden on religion. Like, I think there's legal arguments um, that those communities who may have not fully disclosed could make. Um, but on the 508C1A versus C3 debate, I think it's very, it's funny to me a little because I took classes at Georgetown last year on nonprofit tax and tax exempt orgs with like leaders in the fields, right? Who helped like write these laws and do some of these cases. And 508C1A as like a designation does not come up. Like what gets talked about is if you want to be churches are 501 C3s and it, and they are exempt from filing requirements. But the idea is actually that even if they're not required to file, they're still required to f- comply with the exact same laws. So this idea to me that like you're a 508 C1A, so you're exempt from 501 C3 requirements is, is not actual. But the, I mean, the truth of it is that the IRS is not going after churches. I mean, they're really not. It requires a high-level treasury official. It requires like, like they're underfunded as is. Why are they going to go after people that don't have money? <laughs> like, and the constitutional law issues related. So, like the layers on that, it's like, okay, well, what is the law? The law says that if you're going to be a 501c3 or you're going to be a 508c1a, that you can't be organized for an illegal purpose. The government would say you're using drugs. That's illegal. The community says this is our constitutional right. This is a religious use. 
right? That's going to be the argument. And we're already seeing it. Like uh, the ayahuasca church is going to sue the IRS. If I can keep talking about the IRS, hopefully more people will be able to sue the IRS. But it sucks because like it's so expensive and a pain in, a pain in the ass to sue these agencies. So I'm, I'm trying to think legislatively. I'm trying to think about like all the and ed, like education is huge because even if we do sue, if the judges have this idea around what psychedelic religion has to be, um, you know, like that might still be limiting. So, I mean, I'm really thinking about it from like an all angles approach. Uh, but right now, I don't think there's any good choice for you. Unfortunately, you could mm-hmm. form an entity at the state level and uh, or not. You could form an entity at the state level. And like you're all doing, you know, we're a church. We don't have to file. Um, the IRS would probably say you're still supposed to be C3 compliant. Some state nonprofits, like when you form the state nonprofit, they make you attest to being 501c3 compliant. Um, I was looking at the laws in Kentucky. I don't think you have that problem as much <laughs> um, because there's just really nice religious freedom laws there or nice for some people and in some situations. But <laughs> right, yeah. you know, good, good for your purposes as well. Um, yeah, you can apply to the C3 and not disclose. But there, I mean, there's risks involved with all of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the benefit to me of the 508C1A approach is that you're not lying to the IRS. That's like a positive, right? Like no one's going to come after you or people who sign that paperwork and say, oh, penalty of perjury. Like you can get a felony for lying to the government. So some of these people that have applied. Uh, but again, risk of enforcement is pretty low. Um, so in my work, I try and say, you know, here are the four, like here are some approaches you could, uh, you know, incorporate and do nothing. You could incorporate and call yourself a 508C1A. You could apply for C3 and get accepted and lie, potentially. You could apply and get denied. But none of those will legally protect you either. <laughs> and, right. yeah, like, if you're if you're trying to – but in a, in a court case, I think it's interesting. Like, I've heard it, 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 it go both ways. Like, I think the act of applying for C3 status does help communities get organized. Um, and you might have an argument in the government. Like, if you did get charged, you might be able to say, hey, the IRS said we're a church. It shouldn't matter that we use psychedelics, right? Like the like, and that could work for you. But then the other side, they would probably say, "Well, you lied to the IRS, so how can we trust that you're sincere?" I mean, it's really a lose lose because um, the government in this situation is is um, is wrong. And so, but they are taking a hands off approach. We are acting as if, like internally, as if we are a five hundred one and doing uh, everything as a five hundred one should do, like you said organized and prepared um, for, you know, anything, but it has already presented in little ways, surprising little ways, being a 508, it has its limitations. Um, Like, for instance, uh, PayPal, like PayPal won't recognize a nonprofit because they don't, they're like 508, what? Like, what's that? That's not a, that's not a nonprofit. What are you talking about? And we're like, no, it is. And they're like, oh, no, we need to see your 501 um, determination letter. Are you looking for a community that allows you to authentically express and explore what it means to be human? One that honors the divinity within you and all life? Then Sanctuary may be just the community you have been looking for. Sanctuary is a faith-based organization centered around the sacrament of sacred mushrooms for spiritual exploration and personal development. You are invited to become a member and commune with us. Join us for a Sunday Zoom service or a weekend sacred mushroom retreat in the beautiful Kentucky countryside. Visit psanctuary.org to become a member and find more information. Well, just expand on this conversation of kind of the comparison and contrast of these 
public corporations versus the religious organizations and how now we have an example in Oregon of them being treated the same, which seems like completely contrary to everything that we ever have had uh, precedent for within religious practice in the United States. So can you just kind of talk us through what's going on there and how this how does this unfold? So I think um, you're talking about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the entheogenic framework that was proposed mm -hmm. in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, this has been a tough thing for me to grapple with. It's cool. So I'm a part of the Psychedelic Bar Association. Um, I'm on the Religious Use Committee. So I get to connect with a lot of other practitioners, including John Dennis, who helped draft that work. And um, when he first talked to me about it, I really had to sit with it uh, because to me, religious use doesn't belong in a licensed commercial framework. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. So... And then when he's and like, I think that that the, the the idea of how do we how do we license religion or how do we permit religious use is a really important one. And one I'm thinking a lot about. Um, and and the Oregon example that John drafted was really well drafted and based off the DEA exemption and the case law and all these great things. Um, but to me, like, I don't want sort of like how our conversation started. The case law is wrong in terms of how it's viewing religious use. So I don't even know if that's really and the DEA exemption is wrong um, to me. Uh, and so the more I've thought about it, you know, he's like, the, the proposal is to say, okay, religious communities can get licensed by the Oregon Health Authority, but they're supposed to be exempt from a bunch of these requirements. And from like a constitutional law perspective, um, this framework of religious exemptions requires you to prove for each specific exemption why the religious freedom right outweighs the public health need for each specific one. Um, wow. And that to me seems, I mean, and that's the reason Oregon Health Authority has come out and said, we're not going to do this. We're setting ourselves mm -hmm. up. Uh, for challenges on every, well, and the, the, also the reverse. So they're setting themselves up if they were to do this. And this is something we should be wary of um, because when the law starts favoring religion within this like licensed framework, it, and I said this, I think on Gary's podcast, um, it's analogous to when you think about affirmative action, where they're, they're saying, we're going to choose race and we're going to try and give preferences to race um, to benefit, you know, diversity or, and I think that could be a good thing to do, but from the eyes of the law, people can challenge that under an equal protection framework. So for Oregon, people could say, hey, why do the religious communities not have to comply with any of these regulations? Um, and, and they would challenge that. If you're trying to be a licensed for-profit in Oregon and there's a religious community that can offer the same services way cheaper because uh, they don't have to comply with the same regulations, why would anyone do the licensed you know, for-profit, which I think would be a good thing. But I think people want to do the licensed for-profit model. Um, and so that's why Oregon is saying, you know, we really can't subject ourselves to this kind of potential litigation and challenges. Um, and then not to mention the tax issues, because you're not supposed to be collecting taxes from a church. That's like a pretty basic idea behind tax exempt status for lots of reasons, not being able to have the churches run the government um, and also to promote, I think, these kind of charitable activities. So the re one of the reasons I see for nonprofits, whether they be religious, educational, um, healthcare, the whole idea is we want to incentivize this type of behavior. If people can avoid paying taxes by forming these organizations, then maybe they'll do it more <laughs> and they'll provide services to the community and it'll be a helpful thing. So it's in this weird way the government's incentivizing community. But to try and fit the church or religious community within the licensed tax framework, specifically because of um, 280E, which I don't know if you've talked about yet, um, but it's a, a tax code section that really affects cannabis businesses it's a federal tax code section that also is at the state level, although some states like New York or California and more um, are deciding to not apply at the state level. 
But basically, if you're trafficking a controlled substance, which the IRS, the tax court has said includes selling cannabis in a legal framework and will include selling psilocybin in a legal framework, you can't take any of the normal business deductions like any like your salary, your rent. I mean, it's a nightmare. So like cannabis businesses, this is one of the biggest reasons the legal cannabis industry is failing. And the same law is going to apply to psilocybin and organ. Mm-hmm. Um, it will shift once the FDA if there's rescheduling. So it applies to schedule one and two. Um, drugs. So if there is movement, but right now the IRS is making like you're, you're paying income tax on income you don't have as a cannabis company, which is why a lot of them can't survive. Um, right. And so I, so I don't even want that to be an issue for religious organizations in Oregon because they shouldn't be paying taxes in the first place. Um, and then particularly why this nonprofit tax exempt model can be so amazing is to try and not have those tax burden issues. Um, so to me, it's a two, it's a separate path. So like, I think hopefully one of the things that the religious use committee and hopefully with John and, and other great advocates in Oregon, and we'll do it in more places is to have a different legal framework. Like we just need to decriminalize religious use. We need like it, Colorado has two bills right now. Um, I'm not sure if the second one made it on the ballot. Um, but one of them was a more broad decrim and it included religious and non-religious use. And I think that is a model that would, you know, all that other litigation that people, those challenges, those lawsuits that people could bring would be uh, lessened in a decriminalization framework that didn't just give special treatment to religious use, which is where I think we should be anyways, because who should, no one should be going to jail. This isn't, shouldn't be criminal anyway. Um, But we're so focused on this license tax framework. And it's like, that's not what we need for religious use. I don't think. I will say that, um, in response to the beginning of uh, your statement there about, um, you know, why would anyone like want to pay all this money to go to these like licensed regulated facilities when there's this like uh, super cheap option of this like religious uh, community and service. Um, And I will say there are probably a lot of people that would pay because we found uh, that, um, although I agree with like a lot of what you just said, there are a lot of people that we have found that are just super allergic to like the term church and even community. They're just like their level of religious trauma is so high that they're just, they're allergic to it completely. And they will pay like $10,000 to uh, go to somewhere they can just go have the treatment and leave and not even deal um, with all of that. Um, just an interesting point that I have, I've found very interesting, um, since we've started sanctuary. I think it's Um, an interesting question too, because when I think about those organ, like religious licensees, to me, they're not even churches. I mean, I hear that too. I talk about religion and being religious and people are like, I hate religion. Religion sucks. I'm like, no, that's your idea or your experience. (laughs) And religion is good and bad, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's powerful, no doubt. Um, but I think that those, to me, were going to be more like spiritual alternative. Like, I don't even know if they were going to be churchy, but I hear your point. And there are always going to be people who want it through the FDA. And there are always going to be people who want it through that certain model. Um, but I think it's a, a fair point for sure. Well, to me, that's a, an incredible irony as we continue to <clears throat> work in this in this field, if you will. You know, I, I've personally been... 25 years almost now I've been publicly advocating for psychedelic use. You know, we started this retreat. It's just been a long road for me. And there is a bit of, um, I have, I have a certain level of discomfort with these uh, plants and fungi being primarily viewed through the medical lens when 
even the research clearly shows us that the mystical experience is where the majority of the healing comes from. So it, it's like it's like we're coming at this thing backwards, and I'm wondering what what is the evolution of this going to be? You know, it's just do we have anything that is that is comparable to this? I can't think of anything in history that has a similar you know comparison. That's a hard question. I think something I've been thinking, I was at this conference last week, which was awesome in Ohio called Psychedemia. So it was all mm -hmm. these psychedelic researchers, a lot of them medical model. And it was so funny to me. Like there was a few speakers on religious use. There was a woman who presented a PhD work on the Santo Daime dancing, which was incredible. Um, and there was another divinity school student at the time. And he's interested in how um, ideas around chaplaincy can support educating religious leaders, which I think is really a cool like connection because we do train religious leaders uh, through chaplaincy. Um, but majority of the conference was really medical model. And the assumption was we're talking about patients, we're talking about indications, whatever. And I just like left it kind of laughing because it's like majority of the people in this country are not accessing it through the medical model and they won't for a very long time. Like mm -hmm. most people are getting it through religious communities or through spiritual commercial ceremonies or decrim gray market models. I mean, that is the heart of it. So I so agree with that. Um, and, and in terms of where we're going, I mean, like I said, I'm trying to attack it from as many perspectives as possible. So the decrim efforts, making sure that they decrim religious use and social sharing. Um, and then as the FDA starts coming down, I mean, I've started talking about it. I just want to keep talking about it until we can make it happen. This like, because once the FDA approves a drug, um, you can have off-label use. Mm -hmm. So doctors can prescribe it for uses besides the indication. Um, but I think that we have enough science, to your point, about these being mystical, spiritual, and we have enough history to say, well, we should also be able to have non-drug use of FDA-approved drugs called entheogenic use. So I've said this in Gary's podcast, and hopefully someday it'll land with someone who's like, I want to help fight the FDA on this. Um, but I think it would just take some conversations to say, you know, this is an approved drug. People are accessing it. You know, maybe a religious nonprofit um, could make a, par a partner with um let's say MAPS, who will probably have exclusivity over MDMA and say, mm -hmm. we're going to come together and form a partnership and the FDA is going to give us the okay to develop sacrament that is a non-drug, you know, synthetic sacrament. Um, and I know you've talked about this too, like having, how to, how to distribute safe sacrament. And some people will want to cultivate their own. And also many people won't want to cultivate their own and will want safe sacrament. And having, to your point too, having that like FDA check mark, oh, this is GMP, this is synthetic, this is you know, regulated to some degree, um, sacrament, like to me, that will be a huge access point. Uh, I just don't know how long it'll take for us to get there. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's seems like the big question. Um, as we keep talking about this and I, I don't know, is it, is it safe? You know, some people are saying two years and we were saying five years. I feel like if we look at cannabis, you know, we're, we're how far out on legal cannabis and the, and the federal government still has it as a schedule one. You know, people say that rescheduling something is as easy as an executive order, I think. But like the cultural shift that has to occur before that is just an enormous. Yeah, well, even I mean, something that came up uh, with uh, John Dennis's work and uh, the entheogenic um Council's um, opinions on that and bringing that into Measure 109 in Oregon. I mean, that was such a big part of it was the sacrament 
cultivation. I felt like that kept coming up in those public hearings uh, from practitioners is, you know, I don't want like my sacrament is sacred. Like I, I don't want to have to be forced to prove anything uh, about it or pay to like prove it safe. Or, you know, when I, the inability to use wild harvested, like I'm still really upset about that. We, we collect a lot of uh, wild psilocybin here for our services. And what, what more exemplifies this as a connection to God and nature than you going out and finding your own sacrament? Uh, so I, I don't know. There's like so much of this. This is so sticky. It's so convoluted that, you know, my fortunately in Kentucky, we have such strong religious protections. But my belief has just been like everybody else can sort that shit out. This is my practice. This is my faith. And I'm going to I'm going to practice it in the way that I feel is, is true. Yeah. So I'm really curious, Victoria, about your uh, personal experience with psychedelics and like how like that has informed your uh, your practice and your career uh, that you're forming right now. Yeah, I'm we're talking about all my favorite things. So my brain is like, wow, I could talk about all those more, but we'll keep all the conversations going. Um you know, psychedelics really found me, which when I was a little later on and meeting people who were so desperate for finding psychedelics was really hard for them. They'd be like, well, where did you get your first psychedelic or how did you find X, Y, Z? And I'm like, honestly, I just put myself out in the world as who I am. And like the right people and experiences came to me. Um, really being in California, I think is a huge part of that. And, uh, being around open-minded people. Um, yeah. So I feel like I've you know, I don't have like one or two experiences. I have dozens of experiences over years um, in different settings. And uh, I think one thing that sticks with me from my own experience, which is very interesting, is that I've never had anyone like lead my experience for me. I'm just not there yet. It's Or it's just not felt, which is a whole other, I mean, individual religious freedom rights, the right to use it by yourself. I mean, there's we're not even close to that conversation yet. <laughs> um, but I, I'm there uh, in my head, in my, in my soul, um, that I have the right to use these things in ways that help me. And, um, you know, sometimes it's at a festival or, you know, I think knowing I wanted to study religion in graduate school, you know, was something that I realized while using psychedelics, you know, this validation that this path that I was on was right. And that I was headed towards, you know, this journey and on this way that I was supposed to be is are things that came to me through experiences. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I think that Uh, So when I was in uh, grad school in New York, I did a psychedelic integration group at the Center for Optimal Living, um, which was just like it was a therapeutic center with some researchers. And it was it was interesting. It was both like personal and professional for me because I was thinking like, well, this is sort of a framework for how churches might use this, you know, like group therapy to help people integrate, although religious services look different. Um, and like, personally, I was still experimenting, you know, I'm interested in microdosing. I'm interested in macrodosing. I'm interested in how it helps my personal relationships. And, um, I said, this is on the other day, like I experimented with microdosing during the beginning of law school, which was a little bit of like a reckless, like, oh, well, I want to see how it helps me learn as I'm learning something new. And it was like, you know, actually legal writing is still not fun when you're on a little bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but I ended up doing pretty well in law school. So I don't, you know, I think it's cool to experiment and to, to deepen my own relationship um, with psychedelics. Um, but being in that integration group, 
it was very cool to meet so many people who had been um, brought to psychedelics later in their life than, you know, their 30, 40, second career, third career, you know, late, even later, which is amazing. Um, and saying, oh, I found something that helps me heal. And now I want to change my whole career. And, but for me, like it all happened at the same time. Like I've been like integrating my whole life. So like, because I started having psychedelics at 18 and I was in school, like my career has really been my integration. Um, and now I'm working on a book slowly, but surely that's a collection of essays that I've written over the last six years. Um, and that feels like really deep integration work for me to be like, these are the things I was thinking about and how I was seeing it and where I was trying to go and how can I pull all these experiences that I've had, um, to help, you know, like it's easy to get stuck. Like, oh, I'm studying tax law. So what I think about is tax, but it's cool to read an essay from four years ago when I was studying religious studies, (laughs) um, and kind of like pull all these threads together. So I, 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 uh, I feel blessed that I get to live a life like, like you too. I mean, I hear from some of listening to your work that you, your life is in some ways your integration as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And the practice itself. Um, it's just, it's, you know, how do you get involved with the, with the work and not have it find tendrils of it throughout your life? You know, we had we had an individual who worked as a cleric on one of our recent retreats and his he just went through the cleric training with us and he's been really involved with the with the community. But his last psychedelic experience was, I think, four or five years ago. And it's just how many things in this world can you do one time or a handful of times and you're willing to devote the rest of your life to it? You know, and what does, does anything speak to the religious experience more than that? It's so beautiful. Like just when you're have these experiences and you just realize the depth of what it means to like feel and what it means to be and to be connected. I feel like that's so hard to come back from. You're like, oh, wow, I know what that is like. And like, that's that insight. And then it's like, well, how do I make my whole life give me that feeling? You know, like I always think like sometimes like the best psychedelics is like, oh, like, my life not on psychedelics is almost as good as my life on, you know, because because I'm doing the work of integrating and being Mm -hmm. present and being connected and being full. Um, but it's not easy. Yes. So you brought up LSD, which is one of my favorite compounds (laughs) in the world. Thank you very much for bringing that up. Uh, and I have been really like, we don't have any LSD churches right now. And that, that I know of anyway, that's got to be a, like the, the 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 margin, the 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 distance that that is from our center right now is enormous. But I've been wanting to talk with someone who could at least you know wrap their head around this conversation in terms of something like LSD being given or, or being used as a religious sacrament. Like, where do we even begin with that? This is this is yeah, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. How um, how real is that? I mean, well, that's a whole other question. One's the legal, and one's the how real is it? And you know, I've written. Well, the legal question, about, the real refers to the legal. I yeah, mean, I know yeah, it's yeah. really a religious it's experience. It's really There's real. No yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. Because this question of like, well, because some people say, oh, well, I don't want to be like not sober or like, I don't want to be in a life that's not real. And like, to me, life on LSD is a little more real. Like oh, yeah. my perception oh, yeah. is, is, is bigger. It's not like I'm less myself. Um, yeah. But legally speaking, 
I kind of see this be fleshed out uh, a bit in like the decriminalized nature movement where you see people trying to draw this line. And I don't, I think it's not a helpful line in a lot of ways between mm-hmm. synthetics and naturally occurring substances. And it's not helpful because like the FDA is going to approve psilocybin that is synthetic and it might be better. It's just like, like this, Oh, well, if it's synthetic, it's one it's, you know, and especially in terms of FDA, like if they regulate the synthetic, we might still be able to use the naturally occurring. There's a lot of open questions. Um, there. But with LSD, I think one of the reasons people have justified doing this split between synthetic and natural is this idea of like, well, I'm not going to be synthesizing LSD or MDMA in my church. You know, we're just going to be growing it. It's a plant. It's a fungi. It just grows. Um, But I don't think that's fair. I I think that's like a, okay, well, then that's why we need to have these religious nonprofits that have relationships with, you know, people that are producing safe. We like quality control is important. And so once we get that piece down, um, then I think we can have MDMA, we can have LSD, um, but figuring out what that looks like legally and what the like limitations are going to be. Uh, but to me, there's sh- we're going to get more and more research on LSD, on MDMA, um, and I hope that as they're approved as drugs and people use them and we keep pushing forward these conversations, people are going to be interested. People are going to go to their doctor and be able to get MDMA and eventually LSD and psilocybin and then want to go to their community, some people, to Courtney's point, go to their community and say, hey, how, what do I do with this experience? Like, it's going to take a little time, um, but I think we'll get there. And I actually think that cannabis um, will help us get there. So I, I even though, I mean... There's a lot of reasons why it's still scheduled. That tax code section I brought up is one of the big reasons. The government is making a ton of money off of cannabis being illegal. Um, mm-hmm. So figuring out how to shift that will be huge. But I do think we're in store for a federal cannabis movement within this decade. Um, and then the arguments around a church using cannabis shift. And then like cannabis also has synthetic forms. Cannabis has processed forms. So some of these arguments that I want to be making about cannabis in this decade, we should be able to make about LSD in the next decade. Um, you know, so it's like, okay, once a church can get access synthetic drugs, like what is that? But um, yeah, I haven't seen LSD churches either, but I also don't think we would see them. I think, uh, <laughs> no, like, I think they exist. 100% they exist, um, mm-hmm. but because of the frameworks that exist, Did you I see- don't did you see uh, or listen to Will- William Eckerd? Is that his name? At Psychedemia? Who's oh, yeah. the, uh, oh, no, the... Oh, no, no, no. Uh, what's um, his name? Oh, Sorry. gosh. I'm blanking on the name. Silo uh, recently was uh, um, released from prison. Oh, God. Oh, Leonard Pickard. Oh, Leonard Pickard. Yeah, so I it was that was an early morning keynote the day after the after party. I didn't make it. I have seen him <laughs> other times recently, um, and I actually will hopefully see him again in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, an LSD legend. Um, well, he yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. he fall well, in a vat of LSD or something that's like that. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, I would love to go back to to the cannabis. Okay, so um, for for many years before uh, I, I I used cannabis religiously for many years. I was very deeply embedded within the Rastafarian culture and it has still confounded me how cannabis, at least there's, there's been one case precedent. I think it was in Kansas, maybe somewhere in the Midwest where there was a Rasta who um, was, you know, busted for weed and he tried to use it as a tried to use religious, religious exemption. And I'm still so confounded how that plant has such a long history of spiritual use from, you know, throughout. And 
yet it did not pass the sincerity test. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I sometimes we're like, but there's a history, but there's so much safety evidence. And it's like, if our drug policy was rooted in history or safety, it would look mm -hmm. so different. Alcohol and tobacco would be scheduled. <laughs> uh, cannabis would not be. It would be like our most popular medicine and garden plant. And I love cannabis. I'm, um, I'm a medical patient and have been for, I guess, going on nine years and a, a daily cannabis user. Um, so it's like, it's religious and it's also just, um, you know, healing and personal and all of these things that come together for mm -hmm. me. Um, yeah, I think most of the cases have been around cannabis have been bad. And for the same reasons that the sincerity test is bad because the government shouldn't be thinking about sincerity mm -hmm. for these religions. Um, but I think a lot of them when they're making, and, and there's also plenty of cannabis ministries. I mean, I've had started to have people reach out to me about starting cannabis churches. And obviously it's the same kind of analysis. Like what does your RIFRA in your state look like? And then I think to me, the other question is, well, is it legal at the state level where you are? Um, because mm -hmm. that changes the calculus uh, for these questions. And there, there are, there is a movement of cannabis churches that exists. Um, and there is that one in Indiana. And then there's one in Colorado. Um, I think a big question that you probably also struggle with is whether these are trying to be dispensaries versus being communities. Um, I just mean in the psychedelic world, not necessarily you personally, but psychedelic religious communities have the same, you know, like Zydor in Oakland. Like I think they actually, seems like they got more in trouble for selling cannabis actually than they did for any other activities that they may have been doing. Um, so like when a church is trying to be a dispensary, that's a clear hard line. But I think the idea of when a church is trying to be a church and have, you know, membership dues, and I, I'm a Jew, but churches is a religious org in the eyes of the law. So I'll use that word to describe any religious community, um, knowing that it's a Christian term. But, you know, if a religious community, a church wants to use cannabis uh, in a state that it's legal, I think that starts changing those case law, that case law, because um, the arguments around, well, this is federally elite. And especially once we have federal movement, the First Amendment arguments you're going to be able to make. You're not going to be able to say, oh, well, um, this is illegal, so you can't do it. Well, the burden, what the burden is going to look like is different. And then I think we get into the same conversations that I think Oregon is starting to have, which is, is a cannabis church required to be subject to the same regulations as a dispensary? Can a cannabis church have a community garden? Can, like, what, what do they need to do to comply with state and local regulations to have a community garden and to, like, you know, make edibles and use them as part of their practice? Um, like, that, those are going to be the questions, because once it's legal, the criminality, I mean, you, could, you can get in trouble for being an unlicensed dispensary. That's what I'm saying. Like, that line is still there in states where it's legal. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Is that, did that add clarity to that question or make it make it less clear? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, how can you clarify something that is inherently so clouded? Like, you know, that the fact that the government weighing in on our religious practices, just there, there is no way for me. I don't feel like to reconcile that people are going to jail still for cannabis and particularly someone who is, you know, an obvious religious practitioner. Right now, one of the main public uh, frustrations I have around drug laws or the drug culture, let's say, is that we are uh, rallying as a nation to pull someone, ex extract someone from Russia over a cannabis charge when we have how many millions of people are still doing time in the U.S. for cannabis? It's just like our reasoning is just out the freaking window and we're just like, case by case, what do we want to do here? It, uh, it just doesn't make sense. Well, it brings up an interesting point for me around uh, psilocybin and, you know, is, is right now like the, 
the resurgence or the the blowing up of psychedelic churches right now um, that's just starting is that setting a precedent um, for religious or entheogenic use um, before regulation occurs on the state and federal level like with Mm -hmm. cannabis that didn't happen like there weren't to my knowledge um, many cannabis churches that like were proving sincerity or any of them um, before the like dispensaries and the medicalization of cannabis really uh, happen. Uh, Like if we, does that make sense? Kind of what I'm I'm getting at. I'm saying that we are preemptively like, look at sanctuary. Kentucky is decades away from legal psilocybin access. Right. But when they do, or if they do, Will they be looking to organizations like Sanctuary to help provide guidance in what that looks like? Is that kind of what you're saying? Maybe not so much guidance, but um, if because what I'm hearing from Victoria is that, okay, like there's this there's this precedent set in right now with dispensaries and regulation. And there's all all this regulation that's already rolled out on a government level and to then try and form. cannabis churches and have yet that access and for then dispensaries to say, well, what about us? Like you're trying to like that we shouldn't Mm -hmm. be regulated Mm -hmm. if they're not regulated. And so I'm wondering, well, if we get in uh, before if psychedelic churches and like psilocybin churches get in um, and set that precedent with enough time, (laughs) like say if 10 years goes by before, um, the government starts regulating psilocybin, like as and medicalizing. Well, I mean, it, there's already. A, it, will it be harder to form an argument? Um, think about think about this with Oregon. So here's one of the things we were intimately involved in John's work with the religious access in Oregon. And one of the mandates in Oregon is obviously that you have to buy psilocybin. You can't give it away. But that is a, like that's a central tenant of our organization is that there is never a fee for the mushrooms. This is a gift of nature and so it's a gift of you, harm reduction, and all that. So if what you're saying plays out, then let's again, okay, we have been taking, spent 10 years giving sacrament to our members during services. Kentucky goes and forms a kind of uh, psilocybin regulatory environment. Are they going to then be able to turn around and say to us, oh, well, no, now you have to sell the sacrament that you have been giving away Right. It's like it's the order of operations here. Well, I guess what also I hear is like the evidence piece, like, look, there's all these churches that are already doing it. And how should that change how we think about regulation, Um, which Mm -hmm. I think you're already seeing like an organ in that advocacy. I just don't tend to think that you fit into that organ model. A religious community generally fits into the organ model. I also do think I mean, the case law might not be there quite as much with cannabis, although I'd have to look back um, on you know, case law with cannabis between the time that it was made illegal before it was starting to be medicalized. So that like 25 year period between the 70s and 94, where like the CSA puts put in place and then we start getting medical cannabis in um, California. But I I don't I, I mean, there are plenty we're definitely churches and there are definitely people using it in religious settings like all over the country, like for the whole time. It's just a matter of how public they were um, and how much they were on people's radars. Um, So I think that's a piece. But I think the other big thing when I think about the future of psilocybin specifically in this country is like, one, people are saying it's super safe, more than maybe people say about LSD or, Mm -hmm. you know, even MDMA. 
Um, the other is that, like, I don't think it's going to be a decade until FDA approves psilocybin-assisted therapy. I think you're going to see the FDA approve psilocybin-assisted therapy in the next three to four years. And that's, like, maybe being conservative. And mm. so then once you have that, like, it's not going to – it's a very interesting world with psychedelics because – you have this FDA path, which you didn't really see the same way with cannabis. There was a few FDA-approved cannabis synthetics, um, but like not in the same magnitude and not with the same attention. Um, and then at the same time, you have the Oregon legal license framework. And then at the same time, you have these decriminalization efforts all over the place. So like in New York City right now, you can go buy mushrooms. You know, like lots of places. It's a, it's not even decrimmed there, but just the culture is there. And in Michigan, too, in D.C., too, um, in lots of places in Massachusetts, too. Um, and, and so and you've already seen also some states like I think Connecticut and I believe Colorado both passed laws that say, well, once the FDA approves these drugs, we're going to start dispensing them through expanded access frameworks. Um, so it's, it's not going to take Kentucky passing a law to say that Kentucky wants to regulate psilocybin for there to be psilocybin access in Kentucky. That's going to come once the FDA approves it. And like what, like whether or not doctors in Kentucky will decide to give psilocybin or MDMA, MDMA therapy, I don't believe they can be forced to, but it'll just be like any other, I mean, like abortion or other healthcare where sometimes you might need to go to another state to get it. Um, and that's a different kind of fight. Although there's a related religious freedom arguments being made on both sides, actually, with abortion mm -hmm. um, and psychedelics. Right. And well, then that brings up the consideration of we have 22 states with the independent or the separate RFRA and, and the others that don't. And so as psychedelic, psychedelic access becomes more widespread, what are we going to see kind of two divergent pathways to how this looks? Because if in Oregon... If you can't operate a church in Oregon with the uh, the, the the kind of <clears throat> I don't want to say the less cost involved or the, you know this the um, more limited regulation limited regulation but more importantly it's greater access to the individual right so in Kentucky or states like Kentucky Indiana whatever the RFA is so strong when you can have these nonprofit communities that can do services on a donation basis or whatever and then you've got these California and Oregon and Colorado and all this where there's not the RFRA and so they're regulated and they have to have all the you know there's just more cost involved how is that going to create two almost divergent cultures or ways of practice. Does that make sense? No, I, th I think it's a fair question. It's like, well, what is the impact of having RIFRA? But I mean, there's so many factors because even with cannabis, every state's program looks different in terms of what kind of licenses they have and who's in the market and how much it costs. And, um, and like Oregon is just literally the tip of the iceberg with like psilocybin services. Like to me, like it's, it's still very, very limited framework. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing about RIFRA, which um, I think you're familiar with as well, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which mm -hmm. is the federal law, and then the state RIFRAs, um, mini RIFRAs, which are these state laws that a lot of states have passed, um, is like they don't guarantee that you're protected, right? They just are a, a statute that you could use to defend yourself if someone was going to go after you. And so it's like, like, any community, there's not, besides the very few communities, Santo Daime, UDV, and Native American Church, who have DEA exemptions, like, it doesn't actually matter if you're in a state with a RIFRA or a non-RIFRA in terms of the federal government thinks what you're doing is illegal. And they could go mm -hmm. after you if they wanted. And the IRS mm -hmm. could go after you if they wanted, 
right? Like unless it, like whether you're a C3 that lied to them or you're a 508C1A who didn't disclose any activities to them, but you're acting as if you're a 508C1A, which means you are acting as if you're 501C3 compliant, even if, and like you're, even if you're doing a lot of the things you should be doing, the government could say, but you're doing something illegal and we're not okay with it. But the reason they're not doing that, you know, and the same reason, well, similar reason maybe that they're not going after all the illegal cannabis. I mean, there's so much like the federal government says any cannabis and food anywhere is illegal. <laughs> And it's everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And even in like state licensed stores and states. Um, so it's just like resources are a huge piece of that. The federal government has limited resources. And then specifically with religious use, it's not a good look for a state or for the federal government to be going after religious communities. They don't want to do it. They don't want to be fighting that in court. It's just like, it's not so, it's interesting. It's then that to me, I mean, the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways from my, takeaways from my research is like, like it's, there's almost no way to be legal but your risk of enforcement is pretty low. But the problem is that you can't take advantage of these nonprofit structures to their fullest capability. You can't really create access because there's this like, well, you're not getting charged, so you can't really challenge it. And like, I mean, I, I don't want anyone to be charged. I don't want anyone to get in trouble. And it's very hard to change laws if they're just taking a hands-off approach. Um, like even SoulQuest, like SoulQuest is still operating, right? Mm -hmm. Like they got their DEA exemption denied. They've yeah. gotten in trouble. And they're still operating. <laughs> Same right. with Zydor, right? Like they're still operating, even though they got in trouble and now they're suing. Yeah, they're um, suing so it's like, it, it, it's, I mean, I see these multiple paths, but to me, like, the, it, it, like, and that's one of the arguments I think I would make if I'm talking to legislators or other lawyers. It's like, this makes the, the, the rule of law or the power of law look very weak. Like the federal government is just sitting here with its, you know, arms crossed and it's, eyes looking around while all these communities are doing something and the federal mm -hmm. government has a duty to make it safer or they have a duty to like not get in the way of communities making it safer and that is like the biggest takeaway for me like hmm. so i've been talking with uh, an, uh, an advocacy group uh who was pretty instrumental in getting medical marijuana legalized in florida um but they don't see psilocybin having um they don't see the same value in in advocating at the federal level for psilocybin um, for multiple reasons. And I'm just what what could we do to help more groups get involved in changing legislation, especially if, like you said, they're just sitting there with a, with their arms crossed and pretending like they don't see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, education is one piece, um, and that's part of the reason I'm motivated to write a book. And I'm, I'm encourage anyone else who has things to say to write about it, to normalize it, to talk about it, um, knowing that there are varying degrees of risk in doing that for different people. Um, and I mean, I think it is interesting because it's like psychedelics and cannabis are on similar but different paths. And so, like the advocate, like advocating at the federal level, like we can't even get cannabis through. Like these, there's so much stigma. There's so much misinformation. There's so much miseducation. Um, so legislators thinking about psilocybin. I mean, it is pretty incredible. We had some research bills get through. I think mm -hmm. like focusing on that. Hey, like this is really helping people. Like there are definitely people, and I'm sure you've met them too, who say, "Wow, I heard that this is amazing for trauma. Like I want to learn more, you know." And that, that it's like that extreme trauma or that extreme healing. And so, and my hope is, you know, in five years, that after some of these FDA trials are finalized and people are getting them through the medical model, that the stigma helps push forward. But I mean, I also don't think we need to be waiting for the federal government. Like my approach um, in terms of cannabis policy, because I have my hands in lots of 
places. But when I think about federal cannabis policy and the work I do around interstate commerce and around what the federal law should look like for cannabis, like to me, there are people that saying, oh, we need to let the federal government figure out what they want to do about cannabis. We need to suspend the Constitution. We need to limit interstate commerce. We need to, you know, like there are literally scholars in cannabis at universities that are saying this. Uh, to me, it's crazy. Um, so that we can let the federal government figure out what it wants to do. And it's like the federal government has decided. They haven't done anything for decades. <laughs> you know, like the states are the primary regulators of cannabis, and all we need is for the federal government to get out of the way. Mm. Period. Take mm -hmm. away 280E, take away any potential limits on interstate commerce, and, and let us have the free market. That's literally the whole point of the United States, is we have a whole bunch of states, and we can work together, and we can have commerce among each other. So, like, the cannabis market is, like, a, fa a failure. So I think a lot of people in psychedelics are afraid of, of, of it looking the same. And, I mean, that's a big issue with Oregon, too, which was really funny to me. I mean, I love these people. They're so, such, so, they, they have so much good heart. Like, everyone, I think, in religious use specifically, not everyone, but... A lot of people are in it for really good reasons. We want to create access. We want to help people. Um, but when I said to my friends advocating in Oregon, like, well, why would a church want to apply for a license? And they're like, well, they could be protected. And it's like, no, when you think about a license, when it comes to cannabis, a license comes with expenses. It comes mm -hmm. with burdens. It comes with requirements. Like you would like licensing does not equal freedom and licensing mm -hmm. doesn't equal access. License equals limitations and burdens and taxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, <laughs> no, yeah, yes. Do you remember the first video? How was it we got we became aware of Measure 109 or the uh, the uh, someone that the I worked with in Jamaica? Yeah, Sorry. someone sent Eric a message one night, and we had some uh, sanctuary members visiting from Oregon, uh, and they were staying at our house. And he got this message like, "Hey, did you know there's this?" Uh, not public hearing, but a subcommittee meeting on Zoom uh, about Measure 109 and entheogenic practitioners being included. And we were all like, oh, we got to get, we got to watch this. And we tuned in and we were just like sweating, like, why is this happening? What I thought, like, why, why are religious frameworks being worked into a government, like regulatory, like what's going on? And we made this uh, podcast uh, with our members and we were just all fired up. And um, I think it came across kind of like we were upset <laughs> and I mean, John I'm Dennis upset. saw it I am, yeah. and he was I'm like, upset. Upset like right this. yeah right and um because it's yeah very confusing like hold on like we're not applying to the DEA for a reason so why would we be applying to Oregon uh for uh permission um, but anyway, we kind of cleared things up. We later had a podcast with John. It was and John. I think John, because they had brought Sanctuary up. They were using Sanctuary as an example on this call. And yeah. uh, so anyway, I just think it's going to be really funny when we have people going from Kentucky to Oregon for abortions and people from Oregon coming to Kentucky for psilocybin. Just <laughs> what is going on? What oh, is man. happening? Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, you like being involved in, in, in law and religion for all these years. Sometimes do you look around and you're just like, what the heck is going on? How did we get here this quickly? Yeah. I mean, this came out on Gary's podcast and people don't like it when I say it, but it's like, we don't really have separation of church. We're in a Christian country. And so mm -hmm. like religion, I mean, it, it like surprises me and it doesn't surprise me. Um, like where we are in terms of like normalized religious practices being the default law and maybe less normalized religions being criminal, mm -hmm. you know, like that's basically where we're at where it's like, but it's not, that wasn't how I, I mean, 
whether or not this was supposed to be a country that was free for all religions or just free for people to find Christianity <laughs> is like a historical debate. And it depends on who you ask. Jefferson would say, you could be anything you want. I mean, probably Christian, but like yeah. everyone else was like, oh, you should be Christian, but I want you to come to it on your own terms. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. It's a little reverse psychology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reverse psychology. Exactly. Um, but it, it is wild um, where we are in this country. So we and have a lot of people. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I guess all I would just say is it's also very difficult. Like all these conversations around federal policy, even state policy. Like we're in such a time of political instability in this country. Mm-hmm. So like the idea that we're going to have a federal government that has money to enforce any laws at all in like right. five years oh, is God. like, you know, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just being realistic. Yeah. Like, no, it's no, no. Yeah. It's, what were you going to say? Sorry. <laughs> to, um, yeah. well, I was just going to say that, you know, Probably once a week, twice a week, we get emails from people saying, hey, I want to start a psychedelic church like you. Where do I start? And I'm just curious. Surely you must hear uh, similar things. Do you, do you have a uh, an elevator uh, deterrent or pitch? I don't know. Is it, are you trying to deter people from starting psychedelic churches or encourage encourage it right now? I think right now, because I I sit in cannabis and psychedelics, and um, in terms of my practice, my focus, my passion, um, and in the cannabis world, when people are like, oh, I want to go legal, I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to go legal? Because it's going to be really expensive and really hard, and you're probably like not going to be successful. Um, and as a lawyer, it's really hard, because even like the people that have gotten cannabis licenses most of them operate in some legally gray mm-hmm. uh, interstate market because it's just so difficult to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I actually find the church space to be a little bit um, more comfortable in some ways because it is more legally gray, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is like, it's not like, oh, well, there's a state law that says, I mean, there are state criminal laws or federal criminal laws, but I, I believe that the religious use of these is, is and should be constitutionally protected. I think that like it is sincere. Um, and so I guess my approach when people say, oh, well, should I start a church? What should I do? Should I apply for C3, 508C1A? What can I do? I mean, one element of it is, you know, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to change the landscape or are you trying to fly under the radar? Um, One element is how are you structuring yourself? Obviously, understanding more about what a church wants to do um, and what kind of activities they want to conduct um is helpful i mean i love that you all and my i'm a tax nerd like corporate nerd so i'm all about structuring things very coolly like i think you could have like a for-profit and a non-profit and they do work together or you could have your church and you guys i know have like some other um i don't know brands or companies we can we can talk another time but like to say oh you have more than integration you have like all these different and they could they could be you could have and so this is usually the conversation i have with people it's like well what are you trying to do and like how can i help you do it in a way that's sort of like you know harm reduction from a from a corporate formation perspective. <laughs> how do we reduce like risks that you might have enforcement? How do we maximize your ability to capitalize on tax exempt status if that's what you want to do? And how do we allow you to have an operating business with a business account? Um, and maybe that looks like a subsidiary to your nonprofit, or maybe mm-hmm. it looks like a separate entity, and you guys can do the work together. Or um, and like me trying to make sure as a lawyer that I'm advising people of legal risks and um, you know ensuring that I feel comfortable 
that um, and how I'm advising people. And it, it takes time to get to know people and their mm-hmm. communities. There, I mean, there are still people outside the world who say, oh, religion is just an excuse to use drugs. And and there are maybe people in the world who tongue in cheek are like, oh, let me start a church so I can avoid regulation. And and like those aren't really the people that I'm most interested in working with. Mm-hmm. I'm most interested in people who are like, we see the value in community mm-hmm. and we want to build something um, to be a container for community and spiritual experience um, and prolonged healing, which I think is what religion is all about. Yes. So can you can we talk more about this aspect of community in uh, a, a legitimate church? Because that's for, for us the same thing. And we talk about this a lot, but I think it's always valuable to have more voices on this conversation. A church is not a building. It's not a practice. And that's where this idea of centrality really comes in, that the church is the community. And and so, you know, thinking as a psychedelic church, we often talk about what we can do to change the perspective in our broader community, leveraging the resource of our community. So what are you seeing in that in terms of, you know, nationally, are you seeing more churches that are psychedelic churches that are getting really community involved and are developing a a unique community themselves? Well, I will say I I was like listening to some of your episodes of your podcast, like trying to like tune in. And there was one about community, just like an idea of what you talk about and how you're so Mm -hmm. before I came on. And I loved Courtney. You talked about ice skating as your community growing up, um, I believe. Was that you? Yeah. Um, And so I grew up an ice skater, too. So you had me. Yeah. 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 Um, My mom is like still a judge. So but like I really resonated. No way. Yeah. Oh, hey, lots to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so for me, like skating and then also my synagogue were just like core communities for me um, as a kid, you know, places where, you know, people know your name, but just like you feel connected and you feel, you know, common purpose. Um, And I would say I've been disappointed, I would say, in most psychedelic churches that I'm seeing and that I don't see that which is one of the things that really excites me about your work. Um, And I think part of that, though, is the law, right? It makes it so hard. And, I mean, this kind of goes back to Courtney's point earlier about not everyone wants to go to the church. Um, But right now, because access is so limited, I think some churches are catering to people that aren't interested in community but are interested in access to, to medicine. So like, they're like, oh, we're a church and we do ceremonies and you can come and get your healing ceremony and you pay me or, you know, maybe like, like a soul quest vibe. I don't know. I'm not here to, but just like, okay, you know, you're the transaction here is medicine for, um, money, so to speak, uh, as opposed to, you know, I loved it. The woman from who presented on Santa Daime, I should remember her name. Um, incredible PhD student from Santa Cruz. She said, people come for the medicine, but they stay for the music. And they stay for the dancing, you know, and it's like they stay for the community. Um, A lot of people in that community. But I I think like coming for the community and staying for the community would be the best. Right. And then like what that community can show you and how that community can hold your experiences. Um, And it's interesting because people think psychedelic experiences are like the only ones I'm talking about. No, like when you lose someone in your family. Right. Or like when you have a marriage or you have the you know, you have children like that's a community event. Um, and can be celebrated and processed. And, um, but yeah, no, I've been disappointed in psychedelic churches. <laughs> yeah, I can, it is, it, it is such a gray area. And, um, you know, that's something that's part of our membership. A part of our membership process is, a, is a call is a group discovery call. Uh, now it used to be one-on-one, but the demand we we had so many people becoming members or wanting to become members that we had to make it a group discovery call, which actually became a huge benefit to our membership process because 
uh, incoming uh, new members were meeting other new members. And it gave, it's now giving an immediate impression that if you're coming just for sacrament, then you're in the wrong place. Like we're, if you come here and you want to be a member, it's for the community. And yes, like we are gathered around sacrament, uh, which is the mushroom, but it's the community that makes the experience. It's the ongoing integration through our events, through our sacred circles that we have every Wednesday, through our potlucks, through like all these celebrations about life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the divine that, like you said earlier, like that's a daily communion that we have in all kinds of ways. And it happens through our children and these big life events, death, separation, like, like we need each other just as much if not more than we need sacrament uh, to commune with each other. So it is so important. It is, it's a regular conversation. And now like when it comes to our sacrament retreats, we tell people, you know, you need to be present. We had to set some kind of um, standard for people to understand that uh, in order to commune with us, with our organization and our sacrament, then you need to be present for at minimum three Sunday services before you sign up for a retreat. And there's so many reasons why it's not just for like protection, like down the road, if something were to happen, but like, because where it's at is community. And if you're not already coming together, with our community before you commune, you're going to feel it and we're all going to feel it. And it's going to, um, yeah, greatly impact your experience on either end. So that's felt really good since we've instituted that, um, that policy within our organization. Uh, yeah, it's felt really good. I think too, I mean, it echoes and, and you were saying this earlier, Eric, in terms of like medical efficacy, but um, this idea around like, it's it, like the healing is not in the sacrament. It's in the community. To me, I learned about that first, like that idea of that. I spent a summer after I um, graduated college, li- sort of like living with and learning from this indigenous community in Peru. I was there for like six, seven weeks. And I was right. drawn to this program because I heard from a professor whose mom was like, oh, like they use ayahuasca. They talk about ayahuasca use. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I'm going to learn about this culture to try and understand more like how they use ayahuasca. Um, spoiler alert, I decided not to do ayahuasca there. It was not my experience, um, my time to do it um, or yet in general. Um, but I went and I traveled. It was, it was fascinating to me because the program was actually even more about agricultural techniques than it was about ayahuasca use. But it's obviously this interconnectedness between how you experience the world, your relationship with the world, your relationship with yourself. Um, yes. I mean, it was so powerful. But as part of that trip we visited, there was a research center called Takiwazi. Um, based in Terrapoto, Peru. And it was run by a doctor who was working with Doctors Without Borders, but they were doing a research study there on like some French uh, people that were addicted to other types of drugs who were coming to Peru and they were living in this community and they were using ayahuasca. And what the, the doctor told me, which has stuck with me, which I think is missing in so many of our research, all of it, is that the benefit actually, like these people were coming to um, Takiwazi, they were using ayahuasca. They were also, you know, doing journalism, journaling. They were engaging with community. They were setting ritual. They were having mm-hmm. meals. There was so much more than just that experience. And they found that when they left the community and went home, a lot of them weren't able, they were like, re, you know, receding back into their addictions and, and which is, you know, not that surprising. I mean, it's, it's sad. I mean, I, I would love for it to be a quick fix, right? It would be great if you could just go to a retreat somewhere and come home and everything's great. But like, that's the integration piece and it's the long-term community piece 
like even with AA, like the meetings, it's about community, right? Like it's not, and it's, yes, it's connection to the divine. And yes, it's reminding yourself of what it means to be connected and to feel, but it, it really is the community piece. And then I, I was leaving that experience, like, they're saying it's not really about the drug at all. Like it's really about the community. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I wish we could yeah. sell that to the FDA, right? Like, maybe. Well, I think we would eventually, that's the example that we're going to see. It may be, um, you know, after the fact that that's all realized, obviously, but it was for us too. You know, we went in Jamaica, we did Michael meditations there and we saw so many people helped. And then six months down the road, because they didn't have the community support and it, they just kind of fell back into old habits. And what we're seeing now from that was the big thing. When Courtney and I came back from Michael and we decided to do this here, our whole premise was that we are going to build community because we saw what happens when you have the drugs. I mean, for the, us then, it was still a sacrament. This has always been a spiritual practice from our very first time. But you see the what's missing when you don't have that ongoing community piece. And it has been just so it's so hard to express how incredibly valuable it is. And the people that we're seeing, you know, we have a lot of people here locally and nationally, but locally we see it even more so where individual individuals who are coming in have never had this kind of ability to talk about anything. And I think that's one of the great values that psychedelic communities, if they're if they're really living the ethics of psychedelia, is that you are willing to to face anything and you're willing to move through it together. And so providing that space for people who have never had that in their lives, they come, they come to the meetings and then they have their first experience and they're like, the mushrooms were great. Yeah. But I was changing before I got the mushrooms just because of this container. I love that you're speaking to that. Gives me like shivers. I mean, like I, I, I married a rabbi for a lot of reasons, but I love being in community. And like, I was really involved in youth group and that's how we initially met. Um, But one of the values is like getting to be rooted in community. Like, I don't think I could do this work if I didn't have like people that were there for me. I mean, Period. Well, look, let me ask about that. I mean, you've, you're certainly an outlier in the legal community, um, but that's changing. Obviously, you're part of the psychedelic bar. But how how is that kind of sub community forming? What's the culture of that world, and what kind of support are you all providing for each other in this very weird landscape that you're navigating? You mean, as in, like, uh, as religious, in a ter- lawyers a ter- that help? Yeah, lawyers yeah, that help yeah. religious use. Um, you know, it's hard. I think one big thing is we all know that what we do impacts each other. Um, so trying to stay connected. I mean, one thing I've tried to do uh, and our, our psychedelic bar association committee, we run on consensus. So even though I had the same reaction you both had on like, I'm actually angry that you're telling me that my church should have to go to the health authority and apply for a license. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but there was enough people that felt like that needed to be part of the conversation. And there are people in that community who feel like talking about how religious use fits in with the state framework is important. So I've had to say, okay, like, it's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's about like a consensus. And if all of you want this conversation to move forward, I'm going to voice my concern. I'm going to come out here and tell people about my concern. And I'm going to support the other advocates who are pushing forward their idea about the future because none of us own what it's going to look like. None of us get to, you know, like we're all just doing our best. Like I really genuinely think John has like very good intentions Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. his work is very important Mm -hmm. and I might not agree with it. Um, but as a consensus organization, I didn't do like thumbs down, no non-starter, you know, I didn't stop our community of legal practitioners 
from supporting him doing that work. And I hope that as I continue to do work, I'll get that same kind of support and just, you know, trying to educate each other. Um, I'm doing some psychedelic, there's like a, a law, an online law summit being held by the Bar Association and I'm helping speak on religious use in that. And so for me, a huge part is education. I mean, I'm just trying to like put what I, because everyone brings different things to the conversation. Some people have been lawyers and litigators for decades and I don't have that. Um, but I've been in school and a lot of these people, because they're coming to it a little bit later, when they were in law school, they weren't studying this, right? Like I literally was in classes on religion and law presenting on psychedelic churches. And it's because of the work of John or Martha Hartney is another great example, or Sean McAllister, other lawyers, Allison Hoots, who wrote a, a great guide, like they allow me to do the work I'm doing. I'm building off their work in some ways. Um, and then now I'm like, let me come back to you and tell you like what these, you know, stuffy legal academics say and, and what kind of arguments we can use. Like just trying to take, you know, collaborate, I think would be the, the key way to answer that question as we're trying to support and collaborate. And not everyone is maybe in on that. Right. And like, that's a challenge because um, there are lawyers that'll say, oh, religious use, we should just create another administrative agency and make it harder for churches. I'm like, <laughs> You've clearly never talked to a church or thought about this, but like, all right, guy, like you, you win. Like, I don't know. So I'm not saying it's perfect, right? There, you know. Well, no community is, and that's one of the beautiful things about community is that if we're coming together authentically, then yeah, we're working it out as we go. It's a living organism in itself. Yeah. Um, so shout out to my mom and dad, who are both attorneys. And um, so this has been a really interesting conversation to navigate just as far as psychedelics and what Eric and I have been doing with them yeah. as attorneys. You know, they've been some of our best like um, uh, like walls to bounce ideas yeah. off of. And, you know, because I just grew up with them like, you know, they're attorneys. They love to argue and they love to debate. And so. Uh, they've actually been really great um, with us doing the work that we've been doing. But I've learned from them and my mom in particular uh, that attorneys have some of the highest uh, rates of suicide amongst uh, professions, which, uh, you know, growing up with attorneys, I can see why, um, because it's such stressful work. And so I'm really curious for you being an attorney like, What's that like uh, with your peers who are attorneys, like as far as them using psychedelics? Is that something that's being talked about? Like are attorneys being open with that? Uh, or I don't know, what's, what are you seeing? That's a good question. I thought you were going to ask me, how do I deal with the stress of being a lawyer? No. I'm just, <laughs> well, I'm curious I, about that, too. Yeah, yeah, no. I have Ms. Daly. Yeah, yeah, Ms. Daly. I'm off. No. Um, I have a great setup because I, I joined a firm, but I'm basically my own boss and set my own schedule. So a lot of the lawyer challenges are when you go to a firm and you're an associate and they just like stomp on you. You work a million hours and you don't get any say on what you're doing. Um, so I'm giving up, you know, the 200 plus thousand dollars a year salary, but I get freedom um, and, and the ability to actually try and help people that I've been trying, working so hard to, to do. Um, but I, I think it's interesting in both cannabis and psychedelics. It's frustrating uh, how many people are in it and don't use at all. Um, and it's cool when you like meet an investor or someone's like, oh yeah, of course I use, how could I invest if I don't know? And it's like, well, tell that to that guy over there. Cause he's telling me, how can I, I can't use my own supply, you know, like whatever. It's like people still have all the stigma around it. Um, so I think that is one of the, there's a great lawyer. If you haven't met her yet, Courtney Barnes, um, she worked, she helped with like decriminalized nature. She's written a lot of legislation, something I, someone I definitely want to help, 
um, think about how we decrim religious use. Um, and she, I, I saw her speak at a, uh, an event this weekend and one of her big challenges to people was talk about your experiences. Like, you know, when you've had healing experiences, like you need to be uh, transparent about that. And I get that sometimes like, you know, people will read Michael Pollan's book and say, well, he's an old white dude. So of course he can write a book about how he used psychedelics and no one's going to even think twice about it. <laughs> like, you know, so I think understanding that there are limits to people's comfortability, um, I would say people don't talk about it enough. I try and talk about it. I think it is, I mean, it's scary, right? To know, I mean, there, Brian Marascu, I don't know how you say his last name, wrote that book about like called the immortality key about like how there's a root in Christianity of psychedelics. And then I heard him on a podcast saying, well, I would never do it. It's illegal. And like, I'm just like, all right, guy, like you're so cool. You spent eight years of your life writing a book about psychedelics and then want to say, well, I wouldn't do that. Like those people break the law. I'm like, dude, did you learn nothing? Like, I swear. So, so, you know, it's people telling themselves is the point people telling themselves Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, like you're okay. I feel the same way about Paul Stamets, honestly. Paul Stamets for 30 years or whatever has been, you know, the mushroom man, but he would not talk about psychedelic experiences. And then now, of course, he's looking to patent his own special blend of psilocybin and lion's mane. It's just like, yeah, anyway, if you've got got the privilege, then you you should be using it to help forward the cause. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's so much of it is legally great. Excuse me. I live in legally gray. Um, and in my own choices, I do the same kind of risk assessment. What is the risk of enforcement? If it was enforced against me, what are the risks? And like, there are risks involved in every choice we make. Um, and like, there are definitely people and just like, I mean, doctors, all, all kinds of professionals who have to be afraid of their job for using even cannabis. Um, and I made a decision once cannabis really changed my life of like, I'm not going to consider a job that's going to require me to not use, like to me, yes. my own personal health and wellness takes priority over anything else. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's a risk. Well, thank you for taking the risk. I know it is, it is a risk for you to be so public. And, you know, 10 years ago, I was saying like, we need more women out here saying yes to psychedelics publicly because Men have been puking in the street for millennia. It's no big deal. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, so thank you so much for doing the yeah. work that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, I, I, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say there's a great woman who I really admired, Catherine uh, uh, McLean, who was a researcher at Hopkins. And she started her Twitter now. It's called Psychedelic Momming. And she has kids. And I love that. Like, just to echo on your point, like the stigma around women using these drugs and using them to help them be better parents and better people. Um so I just giving her a shout out, but just in general, the idea, hell yeah, women sure. talking about our use. For sure. Absolutely. And, and, you know, minorities as well. I mean, God. Everyone. Prisons. Yeah, but the people, particularly the people who have been marginalized most for substances, I think should, you know, there's a great value in those being some of the most prevalent voices. You know, I mean, we've got, I, I had a lot of family go down in, in cannabis as, uh, imprisoned and whatnot and so i have felt like that is that makes it part of my responsibility that my family lost thousands of acres of land because of cannabis then i have a responsibility to say no more and you know other marginalized groups while it's more challenging for them to speak up like the 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 strength in numbers is undeniable and the more we just leverage that and the, fa- the faster we'll move forward. So anyway, big thanks. 
Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. We're at almost 90 minutes here now. Uh, I feel like we could talk for a long time. Yeah, especially now that I know your mom's a judge. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, I I hope I'll I'll be able to come back. And as I do more writing and talking and that we'll continue to be able to collaborate, you know, online, offline, any places. And and the strength in numbers thing, I mean, I guess one thing I I could kind of close on or just, you know, if you are listening to this or um, as you talk to more people, like part of the strength in numbers is embracing religions that already exist that don't use psychedelics. Because plenty of them are already 501c3s. Um, they already are people who are interested in community. Um, so that's a huge group that I want to educate uh, in terms of like, how could this just add to your practice? And it involves education from the top down. I mean, from religious leaders and seminaries. Um, and, and, and I think those people are going to come to you. They should be coming to you to say, how do we do this kind of work? Because you guys are already doing that work. Um, so I think, you know, religious engagement is sort of a dying, at least some religious engagement in this country is dying. There's a rise of religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. But I think if religion engages with psychedelics and cannabis and creates meaning and containers for use for people, I mean, that would definitely, definitely is wanting to help create that future is a part of what grounds me in my faith, even Mm -hmm. though my faith doesn't use psychedelics or cannabis right now um, in my community. Um, The idea that in the future, I can bring these two things together really motivates me. And I, I know I'm not alone. So I think the strength in numbers is going to come from all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Such a good point. Awesome. You yeah. Get our, our oh. closing question. Yes. We always ask our guests, <laughs> what does psilocybin say to you? Oh, man. I mean, and you know, I listened to your stuff before and I heard you ask this question to people and I could have known it was coming. And I guess, <laughs> you know, it's just still time is very deep to me and, and connected. It's like one of the deepest. So rooted. So tr- like when people I never understood like a tree hugger until I ate <laughs> like, my feet are on the roots. And I'm like, we are all here together in this world. And I'm just feeling so like deeply connected. Um, mm. It's yeah. So that's, I guess what psilocybin says to me. That's beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And I would love to have you on the show again. And uh, I did, I did want to ask you um, your book, you mentioned you're writing a book. So uh, what's the, the ETA on uh, that dropping. I'm like my editor texting me. Um, (laughs) Um, Hopefully the end of this year, you know, sometimes things take as long as they take and I'm moving forward on a lot of fronts. And, and part of me knows that when it comes out, it will already be too late. Like it should be out. last (laughs) year. And part of me knows that like when it comes out, it will still be ahead of its time Um, because I'm, I'm, you know, writing, a collection of essays based on stuff I've already written, you know, dealing with the history and the the, the present and the future of religion and drugs um, and law and religious identity. And so, um, yeah, I think our conversation, too, will inform what I'm writing. And um, the more I say it to people, the more I'm like, I got to keep keep pushing forward. You know, a big project takes a while and I want it to be good and, and done right. Um, but hopefully the end of this year, my goal for it to be for it to come out in 2023. Um, but you're I mean. Pieces of it are coming out through presentations I'm doing, uh, through tweets. I'm I love being on Twitter and talking to to awesome people there. Um, so hopefully coming soon, and and you'll be among the first to know. Awesome. <laughs> we'll we'll link all of your um, sites and where people can find you in the show notes. So anyone listening, look below. For that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so okay. much for your time today and all of your work, Victoria. 
No, yeah, yeah likewise, really. Um, I look forward to hopefully talking again soon.